Well, you know, we as human beings, will, we will literally invest our lives in anything, won't we? In just about anything. There's some extreme examples that come to my mind. Perhaps you've seen the TV show that's been on a while now called Hoarders, uh, Discovery Channel, I think. I don't really watch the show anymore, but you know, people that have, that have so invested their life in stuff, material possessions, that they literally cannot part with it. Nobody has to admit to this this morning, if you qualify. But right, I mean, literally, that's what's going on. They've so invested their life in stuff that it's so meaningful to them that they can't part with it. Or there was another example. I saw a lady on the news not too long ago that she was being interviewed by a news channel because she was investing up to eight hours a day, seven days a week, and up to $200 a month in this computer game called Farmville. I can't imagine. I don't, I don't know about your, your natural reaction when you come across investments like this that people make in things in life. But uh, I just, I just want to say, go get a life. Go, go get a life. Go do something or be something that matters, that has eternal or real effects and consequences, something that's worth it. You know, of course, the ironic thing, and that's, that's what everybody hopes to do. That's what everybody is trying to do each and every day of their life, no matter the age, no matter boy or girl, what they do. They're all trying to be or do something that matters. They're trying to do something worthwhile. Well, if there was ever a man who got a life in terms of the world, it was a man by the name of King Solomon. Perhaps you know his story, some better than others, but he was the third king of Israel in the Old Testament. Of course, King Solomon was also the son of King David that you can read so much about in the Old Testament. And of course, when Solomon became king, God gave him a chance to ask for whatever he wanted. Can you imagine? Whatever he wanted, one request, And of course, you know perhaps what Solomon asked for. He asked for wisdom. And God was so pleased with his request for wisdom that he not only gave him that wisdom in such abundance beyond what any man had ever possessed before, but he also gave him and blessed him with wealth and honor and power and prestige and safety and a reign in a kingdom unlike anyone had ever experienced before. Solomon became the wisest and the richest man to have ever lived. Solomon's gold was worth an estimated $600 million. His silver, over a billion dollars. Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs. Solomon was a master builder. He constructed the temple in Israel. But he's not just a master builder and architect. He was also a master scientist, an expert in zoology, an expert in ichthyology the study of fish and ornithology, the study of birds. Solomon taught every subject there was to teach. He knew. Of course, he not only had wealth and and wisdom, but Solomon also had women, Scripture says. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Can you imagine when the in-laws came to town? As one preacher put it, Solomon was Socrates... Aristotle, Plato, Bill Gates, Donald Trump, and Hugh Hefner all rolled into one man. That's who Solomon was. In other words, Solomon didn't just get a life, ladies and gentlemen. Solomon got all of life. He got everything life had to offer a man. So what did he say about it? What did he have to say about it? Well, if you have a Bible this morning, you have a free copy of his book. It's actually his latest book. And it's the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do this morning, please turn with me there to the very beginning. The book of Ecclesiastes. Really, a way we could describe Ecclesiastes is almost like an ancient blog or a journal, if you will, of the wisest and richest man to have ever lived outside of Jesus Christ about what he has to say about getting a life and what his conclusions are. So what does he say? Well, we're going to read. We're going to read for just a little while, so hang in there with me. We're going to start by reading the first 14 verses of chapter 1. Follow along if you have your copy of God's Word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the hear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new. Already it's existed ages before which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's what Solomon says, right? That's what he's famous for. What in the world does he mean by vanity? Well, the word actually occurs about 38 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's a little Hebrew word called hevel. Hevel. And this little word is actually one of the keys to the meaning of this book, of what Solomon writes in this blog, if you will, his journal of all his thoughts about life. Occurring 38 times, the word literally means breath, vapor, wind, or mist, smoke, if you will. Something that's, that's temporary and of no significance. It's, it was the closest thing next to zero that you could actually name or imagine. It's something that's here one moment and gone the next. What's left after you pop a bubble, perhaps. That's Hevel. Well, what in the world does he mean, really, when he declares that everything, literally everything under the sun, is hevel? Well, did you notice what he's doing in verse 13 as we read? Did you notice this grand experiment that Solomon is launching? This is really another key to understanding this book, to know what Solomon is doing, because if you, if you listened as we read, verse 13 says, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. So in other words, Solomon is using this wisdom, this God-given gift, 
to seek and explore, to experience everything he can see, taste, touch, smell, and experience in life. He wants to experience it, it all. And he's using his wisdom to launch this experiment to do so. Of course, his conclusion, right, is, is there again in verse 13. But then in 14, he says it's not only hevel, it's not just vanity, but it's like striving after the wind. Now, of course, nothing could be more ridiculous, right, than striving after the wind. I mean, you can't, you can't carry the wind home with you in the back of your truck. You can't bag it at the grocery store. You can't harness it. You can't predict it. You can't harness the wind. So this is what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying that every activity of mankind, every activity of men and women underneath the sun is as unproductive at the end, is as unproductive as trying to herd or shepherd or harness the wind. That's what he's saying. But I don't know about you, but that just doesn't sit right with me. Does it for you? There's something in me that reacts, that reacts to that. And this is why hardly anybody will call Ecclesiastes their favorite book, right? Because it seems to throw life underneath the bus in a way. I don't know about you, but I just, I can't, it's hard to accept that. Part of me wants to say, well, Solomon surely left out something in his experiment. Surely he didn't test at all. Well, we're about to find out. Because in chapter two, Solomon tests the three categories that I believe very clearly encompass all of life. The first category is the category of pleasure. Follow along with me as we quickly move through some of these things that he tests that all fall under pleasure. This is the beginning of chapter two. And notice you'll see in verse two, he tests laughter. Now, of course, Solomon would have had the best comedians money could buy. Solomon would have had the best sources of laughter you could imagine. Whatever your favorite comedian, think 10 times better than that. Solomon would have had that. The best comedians, the best laughter. But then it says he tested wine. Wine, he'd had the best. He'd have had it without limit. He tested that pleasure. Then he says it tested, he tested folly. The end of verse three. Folly, in other words, Solomon threw off responsibility. He experienced what it was like to just have no responsibility at times. Wouldn't that be nice? Sometimes when you think back to childhood and you mean, wow, you just wonder, I had no idea how free it really was to have no responsibility, right? Life can, can build up responsibility. He threw that off, experienced that pleasure. Then he says he built great works for himself. Specifically, he built houses, multiple houses, vineyards, planted gardens and parks and ponds of water and a forest. And he even had these ponds of water to irrigate his forest and his gardens. I wish I had an irrigation system in my yard. In Texas, that'd be nice. He had one for his whole forest of trees that he planted. Built great works. He had that pleasure. Then he says he had male and female slaves and servants. So just think about this. Solomon had the pleasure of never touching a broom. Solomon never mopped. He didn't scrub the bathroom floor. He didn't set his coffee pot to go off on Monday morning. Solomon never folded laundry. Solomon had somebody to do everything for him. He had that pleasure. Then he says he had gold and silver. In other words, he had great possessions, flocks and herds, great bank accounts. Solomon never experienced what it was like to have to transfer money from savings to checking to make sure a check cleared. Had that pleasure. And then, of course, it says he had the pleasures of men, as we've already mentioned, which are pretty self-explanatory. 
And you know what his conclusion is? It's in verse 11. I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and guess what? Behold, all was hevel, vanity, and striving after when there was no profit under the sun. Solomon says, I tested every pleasure there was on planet Earth, and yes, there's temporary pleasure in it, but you know, ultimately there's no significance in it. There's no lasting meaning there. That's the first category, the category of pleasure. The second category he tests is wisdom versus foolishness. This is in verses 12 through 17. In other words, Solomon tested the two ways of living. There's only two ways of living. There's really only two types of decisions. One are are wise decisions. Others are foolish decisions. These are also the two divergent ways of living life, wisely and foolishly. But Solomon tests both of these areas, both of these ways of living. You know what he says about both of them? They're both hevel. And you know why? Because both the wise man and the fool both go to the same place. You know where that is? Six feet under the ground. Both die. Both die. Both go to the same place, he says. And both are ultimately forgotten. Now this is really why Ecclesiastes is not anybody's favorite book. Because think about this. This is a sobering reality. Hardly anyone could tell you the full names of their great-grandparents. The full names of all four of their great-grandparents. So you see what the reality is here, is that when I die, whether it's today, tomorrow, or 50 years from now, the family's gonna gather, close friends and relatives are gonna come, and somebody's gonna bring some potato salad, I guarantee you. Guarantee. It's gonna be some good potato salad. My family will enjoy that. And you know, 100 years later, when my great-grandson passes away or great-granddaughter passes away, you know what's going to happen? They're probably going to eat potato salad. But you know what they're probably, or who they're not, probably not going to talk about or even know or even remember? Kyle Walker. They'll have no memory of me. My memory will be wiped clean from the face of the earth as every man and every woman's ultimately is. Both the wise man and the fool ultimately go six feet under and are forgotten. That's the second category. The third category is the category of work, of labor, a career, a profession, if you will. Surely there's value in work and in our careers and in our, our pursuits of labor, right? This is verses 18 through 23. But here again, Solomon says, this also is hevel. And why? Because just when you work so hard to get where you want to be, to get to the status that you want to be at, to have your hands on what you want to have your hands on in terms of possessions, your bank account and your safety net the way you you want it, life is a vapor and it's over with before you know it. And guess what? All that stuff's going to be left behind to the next person in line. And you don't know, Solomon says, if that person's going to be a wise man or a fool. If he'll take care and value what you've worked so hard to put your hands on or if he'll squander it. Ultimately, Solomon says, work is hevel, but not just hevel this time. He adds something else, and it's in verse 21. Notice what he says of chapter two. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. A great evil. 
So Hevel, ladies and gentlemen, is not just this, um, this vaporous insignificance, if you will, but it's also somehow connected with evil. So now it's making sense of why Solomon is so pessimistic, of why he has such a Debbie Downer outlook on life, right? Because somehow this Hevel is connected with evil. This is why it almost feels like fingernails on a chalkboard to read Ecclesiastes. But you have to keep in mind two things. Number one, this is Solomon's experiment to taste, touch, and experience everything under the sun, all of creation, church, separate from the creator. You have to keep that in mind when you read this book. The second thing you have to keep in mind is that nowhere in this book is this experiment that Solomon launches endorsed or initiated by God. It's not there. Right? However, in verses 24 and 25 of chapter two, we finally get a hint of relief. Some positive news at least. Notice what he says in verse 24 and 25. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen is from the hand of God for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him. In other words, all of a sudden in the midst of this book about hevel and vanity and the evil it's connected with, all of a sudden Solomon inserts this, this reality that we can't experience the benefits of the hand of God in our lives, right? You've experienced this. You know what this is like. So by the end of chapter two, he summarizes this grand experiment. And on the one hand, he has Hevel, the vanity of this life. And on the other hand, he has the hand of God, the blessing of the hand of God. So these two things are set in tension. So the question is, how do we handle this tension in our lives? How do you handle experiencing Hevel on one hand that you experience on a daily basis? But also the hand of God that you experience on the other hand. How do we reconcile these two things in our lives? In other words, how do I reconcile when not long ago we're sitting in our living room watching uh, one of the most popular shows in the U.S., Duck Dynasty, right? And we're laughing hysterically and my little girl who's in the nursery, I hope she's not terrorizing it right now. Um, she's about six months old and we were just enjoying life together, just relaxing on a typical Tuesday evening, right? You know, and it's just one of those moments where you're thankful for family time, you're thankful for the hand of God in your life. And then in the next moment, my daughter's crying and my wife is transitioning her to bed and I let our little dog, listen, like a little miniature Yorkie we had, um, out in the backyard because he wanted to, I guess, chase something out there, use the restroom. And next thing you know, I go out there to get him and he's nowhere to be found. And I'd heard him squeal really loud. And the next thing you know, a pack of coyotes are running off out of our backyard. Hevel, and just the moment before, the hand of God on a typical Tuesday night. The hand of God at one moment and Hevel the next. How am I gonna explain to my wife that these coyotes just dragged? I mean, what do we do when these two things collide in our lives? What would you do if on a Monday morning you're driving your kids to work and they get out of the van or the car or the truck and you're just thankful for their, the gift of God that they are to you and the next thing you know, two hours later, you show up because some deranged shooter has entered the school and you encounter their lifeless body. The hand of God one moment, Hevel the next. How do you reconcile these two things in life? Well, so far, church, Solomon doesn't answer in this book. Not, not, not yet. But what he does do throughout the course of the book is 
is speak to both of these things. And I just want to hit the highlights until we get to his final answer. The first highlight comes in chapter 3. He points out a reality here that we must take notice of. It's in verse 11. Notice what he says. Solomon writes, He has made everything, that is God, has made everything appropriate in its time. And don't miss this. He has set eternity, eternity in their heart. That's our hearts. That's mankind's heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So this is another key to understand how this works, how this tension works. We have to understand that we're built We're built by God, designed, the blueprint of mankind is designed so that nothing under the sun, nothing under and all part of creation can ultimately fully satisfy our heart. We're built for more. We're built for eternity. We're not built to be satisfied by the tangible, temporary things of this life, no matter how much of them we may have. Then turn to chapter 6, verse 12. This is another highlight we must take notice of. This is what Solomon writes. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? During the few years of his futile life, he will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? In other words, Solomon is asking the age-old philosophical question, what is the purpose and meaning of life? What is it all about? That's Solomon's question. After experiencing it all, he wants to know what is its ultimate meaning? And here's his answer. It's in chapter 7, verse 29. Notice what he says, chapter 7, verse 29. This is fascinating. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Vanity of vanity, Solomon says. All is vanity, all is hevel. Why? Because God, even though God made man, mankind, men and women, upright, made them righteous, somehow they have made things go catastrophically wrong. In verse 20 of chapter 7, Solomon even says, Indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Now we're getting to ultimately at issue what is the source of this tension between heaven on the one hand and the hand of God on the other. The whole source of it, of this tension, the paradox of life, is sin. It's my sin and it's your sin. You see, you can really summarize all of life, in fact, all of history, in three words. Just three. The first one is creation. Creation, the second word is fall, the fall. And the third word is recreation. Creation, fall, recreation. These three words really summarize all of time and all of history that if we zoom back out and just take a look back out of not just the nitty gritty details of Ecclesiastes, but look at the big picture, creation, fall, recreation. We see God created all things, right? And he made things good. He called it good, called it very good. God's not the author of sin. He made all things right. And yet, mankind ultimately decided to do things his own way, as you know, as the Bible chronicles for us. And mankind literally had a falling out with God, right? Mankind fell out of a right relationship with God once they disobeyed in the garden, didn't obey God. The tether that severed mankind to a right relationship with God was was severed. And sin entered the world and death with it, wreaking its havoc 
on all of creation, on everything under the sun, including my life and including your life. And yet, God's plan was not to leave us there in that severed relationship, in that state of being under the curse of sin and death, even though we brought it on ourselves. No, he had a plan to bring us out of that, to restore us to a right relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, right? Who became one of us, who actually entered into the hevel of this life, who took on human flesh, who, became, who came in all of our mess, who left the glory of heaven, right, to take on the humility of mankind, not just any man, but the lowest form of man, a bondservant, a slave, who lived a perfect sinless life, who overcame sin and death on the cross. And you see, the cross is where all the hevel of this world collided once and for all with the hand of Almighty God through Jesus Christ as a perfect sinless sacrifice hanging there for you and for me. So that if anyone is in Christ, Scripture says, if anyone has trusted him, if anyone has come and placed their faith in him, recognizing their need for a savior, recognizing the fact that they're a sinner, recognizing they can do nothing to save themselves and trust Christ, they are what? A new creation. They're part of God's recreative activity to remake all the heavens and all the earth as we know one day we're gonna exist in and live in and experience life as it was always meant to be lived as Christ reigns and rules forever. God has already started remaking making all things new through you and through me if you're here as a believer in Jesus Christ. So here's the question. How, if you are a new creation this morning, how do you live in a world that's still under the curse of heaven and sin? That's really the question we gotta answer. And that's the question Solomon does answer. But the last part of the last chapter which is chapter 12, if you'll turn with me there. This is what Solomon writes after experiencing everything under the sun. Seeing it, experiencing it, this is what he has to say. Now speaking not just in light of creation, but also in light of the creator. He says this in verse 13 of chapter 12. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is... Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So Solomon says at the end, when it's all said and done, now considering not just creation, not just everything under the sun, but actually the creator who made the sun and stars and everything under them. It says this is the one thing that mankind must do. This is why they were built. This is why they, we exist. We exist to fear God and to obey him. We exist to know God truly and to obey him fully. That is the purpose, the plan, the blueprint, the design for you and for me. That's what we're made for. This is what it means to be human, to know and obey God, to walk in a relationship with him and to do as he has commanded us to do that it may go well with us, that we may experience the life that he meant for us to experience. And also, of course, the other motivation for this is the fact, this reality, if you will, that every one of us will stand before our creator and give an account for how we did act according to this blueprint that we were designed with. We'll give an account for every thought, 
We'll give an account for every action in our lives. If I could sum this up, say, Kyle, what is the real message of Ecclesiastes? In the very end, this is it. Creation in and of itself has nothing to offer. Creation in and of itself, everything under the sun has nothing to offer, but because of the creator, church, because of the creator, everything matters. Everything matters. So Solomon says, get a life. Get a life is what he's saying here at the end. So how do you get a life? Well, as I've I've just explained, right, it doesn't talk about Jesus Christ here in Ecclesiastes because, of course, as you recognize in the Old Testament, they were looking toward a Messiah. They were, had faith in a Messiah, an anointed one of God who would come, who would ultimately bear the full sacrificial penalty of their sins. And not just an animal that could temporarily cover their sin, but someone as a perfect sacrifice in their place. And Jesus did come. And you know what he said he was in John fourteen six. He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth and I'm the what? I'm the life. The only way to get a life is through Christ. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved outside of Christ. So once we get a life, how do we live it? Once we get a life in Christ, once you come to Christ and and place your faith in him, how do you live it? Well, of course, Solomon says to fear God, right, and and keep his commandments. Of course, fearing God is, uh, is another way of saying it means a real sense of awe and of trembling and of a real fear, a real type of reverence. But, of course, it also means really to, to believe God, to place your faith in him. And, of course, to obey him means to follow his commands. And another way we could say that is to say to obey his word, to follow his word. And you see, I say that because you realize this morning the power of the word of God is how everything from the very beginning came into existence. God spoke and everything came to be. That's the power of God's word. But God's word didn't just create everything, it also, it also sustains everything that it created. God's word not only is the origin of life, God's word is what sustains life, is what sustains our life. God's word shows us the way of life, right? It's, it's what we hide in our hearts so that we may not sin against God. It's the lamp into our feet, the light into our path. That's the power of God's word. Can I ask you this morning, what areas of your life you know deep down are not working the way God intended them to work? What areas of your life are not working the way you know God intended them to work? Your personal life your home, your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, your in-laws, your work, your relationship with your coworkers, perhaps what you look at at a computer screen. What areas of your life are not working the way you know God intended them to work? Could it be, ladies and gentlemen, that the reason they're not is because for some reason you're not allowing the light of the power of the life of God's word to fully penetrate your life so deep that it actually touches and penetrates and illuminates every corner of your life, so transforming your heart that every area of life is transformed as a result. You see, because the way this works, you see, this is, the, this is what's so fascinating to me, is that Jesus Christ is the living word, right? 
John chapter one makes this very clear. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. The word was with God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Jesus Christ is the living word. But Jesus actually says in John chapter five that this written word testifies to him. It gives witness to him. So what we have, the only way, the primary way and the most significant way that we have to be exposed to Jesus Christ, truly, to know him, to abide in him, to follow him, to do what he commands us to do, is to so saturate and root ourselves in his word that testifies to him, that is inspired and is infallible, that is what the Holy Spirit has chosen as the instrument to speak into your heart, to speak into your life and mine, and to change us from the inside out. That's so powerful, that's so sharp, it divides even to the point of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, able to illuminate every corner of our hearts. That's the power of the word of God. Have you allowed God's word to penetrate your heart and life that deep? This written word, church, points us to the living word. And the living word takes us into communion with the heavenly father. Jesus says with the father, I am one and no one comes to him except through me. Don't forget that what you have here is the primary means by which the Holy Spirit is blessed for you to experience the life that God has intended for you to experience even in the midst of the hevel of this world. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, creation in and of itself has nothing to offer. In fact, limited to what's under the sun, it's all a vaporous vanity, it's hevel. And yet we see that everything matters because God the Father is reconciling the world to himself and all those who will place their faith in him through Jesus Christ. So everything matters. So Solomon says, get a life. Not from what's under the sun, but from the Son of God from the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and live it by allowing his word to penetrate and direct every area of your life. Would you bow with me?